Thank you for tuning in to the Alt Fund Investment Podcast. Please like and subscribe if you find this information helpful. We connect investment fund managers and service providers. This content is for informational purposes only. Welcome to the All Fund Investment Podcast. My name is Mike Schroeder. Today we're here with Ben Tenbaum of Markham LLP. Ben, welcome. How are you doing today? What's going on, Mike? Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Thanks for joining us. Let's kick off the conversation. You mind just telling us a little bit about your background and uh, you know how what what brought you to the crypto practice over at Markham? Yep. So I'm a principal in the digital asset blockchain group at Markham LLP. Uh, previously led the funds growth team within the digital currency practice at Freeman. Um, Freeman, by the way, was just acquired by Markham Effective two weeks ago. So I didn't leave. We've just been sort of absorbed into the Markham uh, name. So, you know, we're very excited about this merger. Uh, we feel our teams are very aligned philosophically in sort of where we want to go. And that's to be the industry leading uh, accounting firm when it comes to crypto. Um, so, you know, my background more specifically, you know, as I started my career, uh, it was more at a mid-sized firm. Um, I actually started more on the commercial side, uh, working on the MBA's revenue sharing project. Uh, being a fan of the MBA, I thought this was kind of cool, just you know, coming straight out of college. Um, realized pretty quickly that just because I like basketball didn't necessarily mean I would like you know accounting for basketball. Um, so, you know, <laughs> so I made the switch, you know, pretty early on in my career. Um, I got a chance to work on a small hedge fund. Um, actually, this is when like I started getting into investing myself. Um, finally, had like a steady paycheck, had some disposable income. Um, and I was just kind of fascinated by like the asset management world. Um, it's a world that like growing up, I had pretty like minimal exposure to. And to be honest, you know, I started my career. I didn't even really know what a hedge fund was or what it did. Um, so, you know, over the next 10 years, I worked in a variety of asset managers, uh, between venture, private equity, hedge funds, um, you know, on the periphery, I was always kind of fascinated by this idea of crypto, even dating back to college, um, really sort of the genesis of Bitcoin. You know, I graduated in 2011. Um, I thought it was a cool idea. Obviously, I didn't invest or, you know, you'd be talking to me from my yacht. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I thought it was cool. Like, I understood the value prop of like a decentralized, uncensorable money system. So, you know, fast forward to around 2016. Um, that's around when I made my first investment in Bitcoin. Obviously, then you have the mania of 2017, the crash of 2018. And, um, you know, the whole time it was like a fun little side interest. But I never really thought it was something I would do professionally. Um, you know, it seemed very like retail driven, uh, non-institutional. And I didn't really see a way to merge like this interest professionally. Um, but then you fast forward, you know, a few years, DeFi summer hits. Um, I have a close friend who I grew up with who has really sort of guided me on my crypto journey. Um, you actually know him as well. He's the one who made this introduction. Uh, so his name is Tom McLaughlin. He runs investments over at Coral Capital. Um, you know, he started telling me how like, yeah, so he, he was telling me how like DeFi was going to be like the next, you know, big thing basically, right? Um, and it's the first time that I really saw like the product market fit. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, like my clients started calling me up. They were telling me they want to launch crypto funds. And, you know, all of a sudden between that and the network that Tom introduced me to, like there was a flood of business opportunities, uh, really more on the institutional side. So I guess, you know, long story short, um, you know, which is uh, the firm that I was at, which by the way, like phenomenal firm, like I owe a lot in my career to my time there, um, but they just weren't ready to take the risk and start, you know, auditing crypto. Uh, so I made the decision that I was gonna make crypto my professional future, uh, scan the industry, turned out I had a contact uh, who was building kind of exactly what I wanted to build at Friedman. Um, and they really needed someone with a funds background. So the fit made sense. Um, I made the jump and I chose Friedman, not just because of this contact, uh, Steve Baum, who's a partner in our practice as well. He's really more on the operating company side, but I was just incredibly impressed with, uh, the technology and the people and support we had in our group from like a blockchain tech standpoint. So we run all of our own nodes in house. Um, I thought that was really cool. 
honestly, like for the first time in my career, I had someone other than Tom to talk crypto to whose eyes didn't just like gloss over, you know, when I started talking about decentralization or like censorship resistance or some like food-based yield farm. Um, so, you know, that was like pretty exciting and, you know, we've continued to build since then and, you know, definitely very excited to continue to build into the future with our new partners at Markham. Awesome. Well, yeah, good stuff. Tell us about your practice at Markham and, uh, you know, the services that you guys offer, you know, obviously add tax, but you know, let you take it away. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we're striving to be a full service shop when it comes to crypto businesses. Um, you know, we have a really impressive consulting group, uh, like the guys that like brain power in that group kind of blows me away. Um, and they, and they work with both crypto businesses and high net worth individuals, helping to sort of untangle some of the on-chain transactions and prepare reconciliations for like the tax accountants that then file on behalf of our clients. Um, you know, we also do returns. It's really not like a core part of our business. It's really not like the highest leverage work that we, we think that we could add value at. Um, so we offer these consulting services to do these recs, which the actual tax accountants generally struggle with. Um, we also offer consulting services around internal control processes. For example, you know, how to build out systems to properly recognize revenue. Like if you're a mining and staking company, that's not so simple. Um, and then also operational best practices around how to custody digital assets, which obviously is critical for asset managers. Um, obviously we have a robust audit practice as well. Uh, we audit all sorts of crypto companies ranging from exchanges, payments platforms, crypto banks. We work with L1 and L2 teams, uh, mining and staking companies. And then obviously, you know, asset management is my area of focus. Um, on the asset management side, we service a bunch of private VC funds, uh, making first check type investments into the ecosystem, private equity funds, hedge funds, uh, and that includes a bunch of on-chain DeFi funds across a variety of yield generating strategies. So that's from the simplest like buy and hold to exotic yield farming, liquidity providing, staking, you know, so on and so forth. Um, we also work with some of the largest players in the space just as a function of being first movers in the industry. Um, you know, Freeman's been auditing crypto since 1415, obviously predates my involvement there. Um, and this is obviously a public record. We audit the largest digital asset manager in the world. Uh, they happen to be a public filer with the SEC. So I'm sure, you know, all your listeners know who I'm referring to. If you, you know, if you don't, DYOR. ADV files. ADVs. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, good stuff. Uh, in terms of the types of funds you guys work with, you know, talk to us about size, domicile. Uh, you already mentioned trading activities, but if you just want to highlight that again. Yeah, so we work with, again, all, all sizes of funds, right? So like we, we work with fund managers as small as like 5 million under management, and then all the way up to the largest institutional RAAs and, you know, the publicly traded managers that, you know, I just mentioned. So, you know, at the, at the height, that entity was at 60 billion under management. So, you know, we really work with the full range of managers. Um, trading activities, like I mentioned, we work with a lot of um, venture and private equity style funds and then also on-chain uh, DeFi funds as well. Awesome. And you mentioned you guys run your own nodes. What is, what, is, uh, what does that look like and how, did, how does that uh, you know, kind of tie along with the audit side? Yeah, so I mean, obviously um, with blockchain, it's, you know, data is really important, right, to get good data. And, you know, unfortunately, we can't really rely on an explorer, right, to pull uh, good data just because it's sort of a black box. You know, we don't have like a, what's called a soccer port on the explorers. So it's really important for us to pull the data directly off a node. And when we run it ourselves, we sort of control what that looks like. So to be honest, like we have a tech team that can speak to this way better than I can, but they've spun up nodes, not just for Bitcoin and Ethereum, but for, you know, 10 to 20 assets at this point. And we pull all of that data ourselves and we don't necessarily go to third parties and say, okay, what is the blockchain saying? We actually run all of that ourselves. Awesome. Cool. So tell us about the role of an auditor. What is it, you know, what's the importance of an auditor and, you know, why, why does anyone care to have their fund audited? Yeah. So I guess before we talk about like the role of the auditor, um, I kind of think it's important to establish like what's the role of accounting in general, right? Like why is this like industry important? Like why do we even need accounting? Um, 
you know, if you think about what an economy is, like it's really just an aggregation of transactions, right, between market participants. So someone's expense is someone else's income. Someone's debt is someone else's asset. And, you know, all accounting really is, it's just a way to normalize this transactional activity into like at least a somewhat comparable standard, right? And when you do that, you let market participants who like, by the way, is not just like investment professionals, but really anyone who makes financial transactions, which is like everyone, right? Um, so it really lets them make good business decisions on how to allocate their capital. Um, and, you know, if you don't have good data, you can't make good decisions. It's really like garbage in, garbage out, right? So the same way that, you know, languages were developed to normalize the standard of communication, you know, between people like hundreds of thousands of years ago or, you know, whatever it was, like instead of throwing rocks at each other, we can say GM on crypto Twitter. Um, you know, I would argue like accounting is like a pretty similarly critical innovation, you know, sometime around like the 13th century um, to really normalize the standard of tracking this transactional activity, right? And, you know, lo and behold, what happens in the 14th century, like you get the Renaissance, right? So, you know, obviously people think of the Renaissance and they're like, oh, it's like art and music and science and whatnot. But, you know, what, what sort of allowed all of this new, like innovative thinking and like, transactional activity to happen was we actually developed like a real record keeping system, right? Like outside of a barter system, which was obviously not efficient and, you know, not capital efficient. Um, you know, when you make it more easy to exchange goods and services and more efficiently allocate capital, uh, it makes the whole system work way smoother, right? So I guess back to your actual question, right? Which is like, what is the role of an auditor? <laughs> so I think like we sort of established the importance of having standards, right? And like to make transactions and ultimately financial statements comparable across businesses and just to allow people to make good business decisions. Um, so like it simply put, the role of an auditor is just to make sure businesses are actually following these standards, right? And I think where um, yeah, there's some confusion out there on like who we actually work for. Um, we don't work for the government. We don't work for the regulators. Like we're really working to serve the public interest. And, um, you know, that's why when standards that are put out there by the regulators conflict with the economic reality of like what certain transactions are happening or like what the asset class actually is doing, it's really frustrating for us as like CPAs and as an accounting industry. And, um, you know, there, there's a take I really like, and I, I want to give credit to Jeremy now from like Armanino's crypto group. Um, I think he had a post on LinkedIn where he basically said, like, every time that we as a profession were forced to opine on a financial statement uh, that has one of these, like, I would say misguided standards, it sort of erodes the public's confidence in the credibility of our profession. And the public is really who we're serving, right? So like you have to maintain that element of trust and credibility in our profession. Otherwise this entire financial system, you know, that's tracked on a bunch of Google sheets throughout the world, it just falls apart. Um, you know, and the specific example that Jeremy was referring to was the treatment of digital assets for operating companies as indefinite life intangibles. And mm -hmm. um, you know, I think this doesn't necessarily impact my clients or your clients in the asset management space, right? Where they file, they file sort of specialized accounting where everything is sort of fair valued. Um, but on the operating company side, let's say a company buys Bitcoin, right? They put it on their balance sheet. They can't report it at fair value the same way that they would, let's say, a marketable investment in like Apple stock, right? But the economic reality is that these businesses are putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet to generate some level of returns on their capital, right? As they would with any other marketable investment. So the unfortunate thing is that this current guidance calls for this indefinite intangible treatment and essentially requires companies to report their Bitcoin at the lowest value it's ever been since being purchased, which is like just, just kind of like insane, right? So wacky, wacky. It's crazy. So, so the best example of this is MicroStrategy, right? So because Michael Saylor, he decided to basically turn his software company into like a Bitcoin trust, right? Um, and if you look at his 10K, which is the annual report that all public filers are required to file with the SEC, like all semblance of comparability is just like totally broken. Like you look at their balance sheet, right? It's incredibly misleading because if Bitcoin wicks down even for an hour, that sets the new book value of that asset, right? 
So the result is they show these like tremendous operating losses. They're not true losses, right? They're just like fake write downs of Bitcoin. And then like this bad accounting guidance, basically in this scenario, it's stripped away like the entire ability of market participants to just look at MicroStrategy's financials and get an accurate representation of what their business is actually doing, right? Right. Comparability, like totally broken. Investors can't make good decisions without spending like an ordinary amount of time decoding like what's actually going on in this business. Um, so I think that's just like, you know, one example where those of us within the industry who understand this asset class, we really need to engage with the regulators. Um, we need to guide them to the right answer. And we've already seen some of that starting to happen, right? So, you know, I'm confident over time, um, we're going to move more into like a fair value framework for digital assets, which I think is where this really needs to move. Um, but until then, we're going to continue to, you know, sort of be frustrated and, you know, businesses will be frustrated. And unfortunately, it's going to hamper uh, corporate adoption of this asset class. Because, you know, what CEO is going to want to put it on their balance sheet as sort of a treasury reserve asset? And then every quarter I have to show these huge operating losses, right? And have these right, huge these markdowns. Yeah, it just right, looks yeah. Good. I, I love that you walked us through that. And even like when it comes to pricing Bitcoin, you know, it's going to be a different price on exchange one versus exchange two versus exchange three. So, um, it, I mean, it's a mess when it, you know, when it comes to that side. I mean, when you guys are auditing funds now, what does that look like? You know, are you guys basically just kind of reviewing the fund administrator's work or can you get into that first a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when we audit funds, I think there's really two key considerations for any crypto fund audit, right? It's really like existence and valuation. Um, the rest of the audit is fairly similar, whether you're auditing a crypto fund or a non-crypto fund, right? It really doesn't matter. Um, and with a traditional manager, like the existence assertion is like very easy to validate, right? So you have securities or investments, they're held with brokers. Those brokers are regulated by, you know, a slew of regulators. And those brokers provide confirmations basically saying like, yes, this fund actually owns certain investments, right? Um, as auditors, that makes our job pretty easy, right? We just rely on what the broker tells us. Uh, with crypto funds, like obviously it's not the case. So you have... You, know, you don't have broker statements for the blockchain. Um, what you do have, hopefully, is a publicly verifiable ledger, right? The problem is that, like, normalizing this data, what we talked about before with the nodes, right, it's not always easy. So, like, as auditors, we can't, like I said, place reliance on, like, Etherscan, right? Because the code is just a black box. We have no way of knowing if it's actually pulling the right data off the Explorer uh, or off the blockchain. Um, like, in practice, I think these explorers are actually pulling the right data, right? Because if they weren't, there's a whole bunch of Twitter sleuths who would you know, take advantage of arbitrage opportunities. And, you know, just based on like asymmetric information, if they're able to pull one set of data and explorers are reporting something that's not correct, there's obviously opportunities there, right? To make, to make some sort of profit. Um, the problem is that we can't go to the regulators and say like, Zach XBT's Twitter account said, this is good. So like this duck avatar is like attesting to the legitimacy of the blockchain, right? <laughs> So like, unfortunately for, from an audit side, it requires like a certain level of technical sophistication just to validate that like the assets held on chain actually belong to our clients. Um, you know, especially when you get into smart contracts, staking, various DeFi activity, um, you know, those assets may or may not even show up in our client's wallet, right? Especially if they're staked or they're locked into some sort of smart contract. Um, you know, with crypto, you have this great feature of its sort of non-custodial nature. From the audit side, like that presents obvious risks and headaches, right? Um, you know, you don't have that trusted third party you can go to, you can rely on. And, you know, that's something I love about crypto, that we remove this like sort of trust layer, but also requires the auditor to have this sort of level of understanding of the underlying technology to really be able to truly attest to our client's ownership over, you know, the private keys and, you know, get some sort of reasonable assurance that the rights and obligations to those assets actually belong to our clients. So, you know, even in the event when managers are holding assets off chain, right, with a centralized counterparty, like, let's say, you know, like in, in Anchorage, um, 
you know, Anchorage or Coinbase, like those counterparties, they're not necessarily subject to the same level of scrutiny as uh, banks and brokerages, right? So, you know, crypto exchanges, for example, they commingle all your funds. So that means that like you hold Bitcoin with Coinbase, that Bitcoin is not sitting in like Mike's account. Like it's sitting in an omnibus account with everyone else. So I can't go to, you know, the blockchain and say, what Bitcoin is sitting in Mike's account at Coinbase, like that just doesn't exist unless you're using, you know, their custody product. Um, mm -hmm. It's really just all internal entries, right? But we're relying on Coinbase systems to make sure that they're tracking all of it properly. And from an audit standpoint, if they don't have sort of like a, a service organization control report around that process, you can't rely on that data. So again, all of these things make it make it difficult from the audit side. That specific scenario of commingling funds and exchanges basically means that these exchanges don't meet that the definition of a qualified custodian. And any fund that is registered with the SEC, they have to keep their funds with a qualified custodian, right? So now there are QCs in the crypto space that obtain like state charters, similar licenses, uh, Coinbase Custody and Anchorage being two examples. And there, there's a big difference between Coinbase Custody and the exchange product that you know retail knows about. And you know I think that there was some uh, confusion there, like in the latest 10Q filing of what's actually insured and what's not based on whether you're on the exchange or you're in the custody product. Um, but even there, like the SEC has not formally recognized these things as QCs, right? So again, just it creates a level of um, of uncertainty in the industry, and you know we sort of have to work through uh, through analogy to work through some of this stuff. Right, and you mentioned there, yeah. So as SEC registered, so now for these funds to be SEC registered, you know, talk to us about that. Is that is every fund SEC registered is only you know a, a fund that's filing a you know form ADV, which my understanding is over one hundred twenty five million dollars. You know, what what type of funds are SEC registered and, yeah. and required? to do this? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, funds are registered with various regulatory jurisdictions, right? So the SEC has an AUM requirement, and they also have certain exemptions. So for example, if you run a VC fund and you don't necessarily have um, a, a large percentage of your fund in liquid assets, you you get a like a VC exemption, right? Where you don't necessarily have to, you still have to register, right? But you don't have to, you know, do, uh, for example, the surprise custody examinations. Um, so there, you know, there's various requirements within various regulatory bodies. Um, the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority is a very popular one. They require audited financials within six months of year end. Uh, the SEC requires that within 120 days. And the reason we really do these audits for RIAs is because there's this thing called the custody rule where the SEC can come in and or someone has to come in and do a surprise custody examination of the portfolio. And that's obviously an operational headache, right? So to get out of this requirement, a lot of asset managers opt for the, for the option to get an audit. And when they get an audit within 120 days, distribute that to investors, that gets them out of that requirement. But we also work with a bunch of funds that are private, right? So for example, like if you raise capital from accredited investors, you stay below a certain AUM threshold, or if you qualify for one of those exemptions you know, that we talked about, you technically don't need an audit, right, for regulatory purposes. Um, but these funds will still typically do audits anyway, because when they basically raise funds, they'll agree with their limited partners when they draft up their partnership agreements or other fund governing docs. Um, you know, that they want to audit, right? And the purpose is twofold, right? One is to give them some level of, you know, transparency into are these returns like really accurate? And uh, the other one is just to, to give the um, the manager a level of legitimacy to go out and market the fund and say, listen, like we have this reputable auditor who is saying like, you know, we have what we say we have and the returns that we say we returned are actually accurate. Um, and again, that goes back to sort of like comparability and allowing people to make good business decisions. Um, and that's why even, you know, with these small private funds, funds that go as small as like $2 million under management, they'll still often opt to get these audits. Yeah, that's great. So that was actually going to be my next question in terms of what funds are required to get an audit. So you mentioned SEC registered and, and a lot of these funds will be putting this in their offer, offering documents. And, you know, it sounds like a lot of investors would like to see that as well. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So if you're an RIA, you're, you're getting audited, 
right? So that's basically um, every every fund that's registered with the SEC over the AUM threshold, they're going to get an audit that's required to be filed within 120 days of year end. Um, if you're an offshore fund and you register with someone like the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority or BVI, uh, that requirement for SEMA specifically is six months. So they need an audit within six months, even if the uh, the fund manager is not an RIA. You still need to file with SEMA within six months. Um, and then the other side of that is, yeah, like the private funds, they'll just get audits anyway because it's very hard to raise capital, especially in this space where a lot of these managers are young. They don't necessarily have a track record. And uh, to really get someone to commit you know, checks of a million dollars plus, uh, it's hard to do that without the legitimacy of an audit. 100%. And I know you, you touched on a couple of things here already, but tell us about some of the complications that you see you know, particularly when it comes to auditing the crypto funds. Yeah, so I think the existing stuff is is what I talked about before, right? That's really uh, with crypto, the main um, sort of struggle, right? Or pain point that you don't really have on a traditional fund. Um, I think the one area we didn't really talk about yet is uh, valuation. So generally with a fund audit, like valuation is like the whole deal, right? Um, with crypto, like I said, like really custody becomes a big thing, the existence, but you still have unique valuation considerations. So I would argue with a VC or a PE style fund making investments in crypto companies, the considerations are really no different than like a traditional venture or private equity fund. Um, obviously, assuming there's no like liquid token in whatever project is being invested in. Um, with liquid tokens, though, it's it's sort of unique uh, because you don't have what's called a principal market or, or you don't have an obvious, let's say, principal market. Right. So as an example, Apple stock trades on the Nasdaq. Uh, all the liquidity and volume is collapsed into one exchange. You know, the Nasdaq is going to close at 4 p.m. every day. That's your cutoff time, right? And you have your one main exchange that you can go to. And it's very reasonable to say that the last trade of Apple stock on any given day is representative of fair value, right? You're not going to trade Apple stock anywhere else, most likely, right? So with crypto, right. there's hundreds, if not like thousands of exchanges around the world with fragments of liquidity, and they trade 24 hours a day. And now you also have like DEXs competing with CFI exchanges for liquidity, right? So you have all these fragments of little like bits and pieces of liquidity around the world. So it becomes really important to establish, first of all, like what markets are even accessible to your client, right? Like if your client is not even allowed from a regulatory standpoint to be playing around in DeFi, you wouldn't even consider a DEX, right? Because they can't actually access that market. And then you also kind of need to set a cutoff time because these markets trade 24 hours a day around the world. Like what time is, is your actual valuation striking, right? Your, your NAVs. Um, so that th those are two really important considerations. And obviously, once you go down that sort of flow chart of figuring out what is your principal market, and a lot of times that's going to be your accessible exchange with the greatest level of volume and activity, um, that's where you sort of identify a cutoff time and set a price, because ultimately that's what's going to represent the exit price of that asset that you're actually able to, you know, to get out of. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks for going into that. And uh you, one thing I'm also curious about, because I, I know you, you guys have come across a couple NFT funds in your time, you know, tell us what that looks like, because, uh, you know, I, I can't even imagine from the outside looking in. Yeah, so NFT valuation is interesting, right? Um, I mean, it's obviously a level three investment, right? So you can draw a parallel to funds that invest in like art or whiskey or like really any other level three investment that you can't really do a discounted cash flow on, right? Because they're not like cash flow generating assets for the most part. Um, so typically these types of investments, you really need to bring in a valuation specialist or an appraiser or something like that, right? To value the asset, because there's really no trade volume to point to. With NFTs, that's different, right? You obviously do have a ton of trade activity. The problem is that data is really bad. So like we know there's a ton of wash trading going on in NFT space, right? I can't necessarily point to a floor price of a project on OpenSea and be like, okay, that's indicative of fair value. Um, so, you know, part of me almost feels like as an industry, we're being punished for having too much data. 
Um, but the reality is it's actually very difficult to isolate like what is true trade activity on NFTs and what isn't. Um, you know, even beyond like just the, the wash trading for tax purposes, like we have people actually like yield farming NFT exchanges to try to get like access to the token, right? And just like moving assets between their own wallets. So it, it really is not um, as easy as you would think, right? Of just taking the floor price. And I think a lot of people assume it's just that simple. Um, right. And then, I mean, you got these collections or you got the frog with the hat or, you know, the cigar. <laughs> yep. Some of them are a little bit more rare. Like things like that could definitely be an issue as well on the valuation set standpoint. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the rarity trade's an interesting thing. I want to come back to that. But I do think like sort of as the space matures, you know, we're going to have a combination of, first of all, like legitimate appraisers of NFTs, right? Because because the industry is so new, like it's hard to say someone that's been in the space for two years is like a legitimate appraiser of this stuff. Um, you know, I also think we're going to have much more robust reporting tools on things like rarity traits and true trade activity, but on rarity, right? So that's an interesting one. So I have clients that have come to me and they say like, I have this NFT it's got a 1% feature, like it makes it way more rare and more valuable than all the other ones in this collection. And my response is always like, what are people paying for that feature, right? Like just because something is rare doesn't mean it's actually valuable. So if there's like literally zero demand on a 1% feature, but a 5% feature is trading like at high volume for high valuations, like that 5% feature may be less rare, but it's way more valuable, right? So I think just something that like industry participants that are dabbling with, you know, NFTs, especially for like, investment purposes and not just because like they like the duck or they like the goose um you know it's just something for them to consider so you know although personally like i think nfts are you know they're going to expand like far beyond the scope of pfps um whether that's going to materialize through like game fi or some other use case of bringing you know real world assets on chain honestly i don't know um but i firmly i firmly believe that like you know what we conceptualize now as nfts and what like mainstream media thinks of nfts that's like nowhere close to the final form of what this you know innovation is going to unlock yeah, absolutely. We'll see where it all goes. Uh, ben, what advice would you give to a new hedge fund entering the market today? <laughs> so I guess like a self-serving answer here, like get good service providers um, yeah. you know, and get them lined up early, right? So particularly legal administration and audit, you want to have that locked down like early, right? And make sure you're working with people that actually know what they're doing in the crypto space. Um, you know, a lot of fund managers are focused strictly on the trading and like, I get it. That's what they know. That's what they do best. Like they don't really want to do debits and credits, but, um, you know, neglecting the proper like fund structure from a tax standpoint, right. Or accounting, it's always way harder to go back and unwind something retroactively. So, you know, I would also just encourage like open lines of communication with all your service providers. So like, don't just say, okay, like I hired these guys, like they'll figure it out when I need them. I would actively engage your administrator, your auditor, right. To make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, you know, obviously in this industry, things are not black and white and you want to make sure there's agreement both on like accounting treatment and, you know, operational best practices and any other considerations that these service providers have seen right across other clients that can give you their insight. Um, you know, I get that sometimes the fund manager, you don't want to talk to your auditor in the summer, right? When the audit is like six months out, but like, trust me, we're on your side. You know, we want to help you get it right. And, you know, we don't want to untangle it six months later either. So I yeah. think that's sort of in everyone's benefit when, when, um, you know, people are proactive, uh, one other piece of advice, and again, I'm not a trader. It's like easy for me to say from my side of the table, but um, like stay humble, right? Like just because you made money in 2020 and 2021, like doesn't mean you're an investment savant. Like literally everyone made money in, in those years. Um, so I think we're entering a much different climate now with, you know, obviously tightening financial conditions um, and the managers that made money over the last decade, they won't necessarily be able to repeat that performance if they don't recognize what's changing 
and they're not nimble enough to adapt and adjust to the changing macro conditions. So I think, you know, one, one advice, especially in this space where you have a lot of young fund managers who, um, you know, I'm like, I'm young myself, right. But like, I, you know, people that weren't around for 2008 or, you know, even like the, the macro situation of the seventies and eighties, right. Like they don't necessarily know what it's like to not live in a low rate environment. And personally, I don't either. Right. My entire professional career is in a low rate environment. Um, and I think we'll see like who, who the real, um, talented managers are to see, you know, based on how they adapt over the next you know year, two, three years. Yeah. I love that. We'll see where it all goes. Um, Ben, this, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, where can people go to connect with you and learn more about Markham? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but I don't tweet, so don't bother following me there. Um, I also believe I'm on Markham's website now. So if you go there and type in my name, I should pop up. Um, you can also email me. It's uh, benjamin.tenenbaum at markhamllp.com. We'll put that in, in the link. Um, also on Telegram, BMT211. So feel free to hit me up there. Awesome. Ben, this has been great. Thanks so much, man. All right, Mike. Great talking to you. Thank you for watching the All Funds Investment Podcast. As always, please like and subscribe if you find this information helpful. And let us know down below in the comments what questions you have. Reach out if you're starting an investment fund, and we can help connect you with the right service providers. 